So, uh, hi, Erin. A question here. How you started with Java? So you still oh. remember that? What was your first Java code? Okay. So, in the, oh my gosh, that was like dinosaur years ago. Um, so I started coding Java in college. I think Pascal was high school. C and C++ and Java was college. That was early Java. That was a long, long time ago. And um, one, of my, one of my professors was a big fan of the language, even though it was somewhat new. There was another professor who was very snobby, and he was like, well, if you don't do C++, you don't know what you're doing. I, I tend to agree. You should learn C++ at some point, or C, or anything that you know, lets you destroy the universe if you do a malloc the wrong way. Um, so, so that was there. And then Java started. And I really like that. I did a kind of odd project for my master's, uh, which was eons ago. I actually was doing robotic assembly lines where I was, I'm not kidding. It's so hysterical when I look back. I was using uh, Java beans to auto configure some code that would then set routines together to drop down into assembler to drive robotic arms on, a, on an automated assembly line. So, so, so you used uh, Java beans for, config for configuration? For configuration, and um, so I have always been an object-oriented thinker. Like, I can do the functional thing, but I object-oriented stuff just comes very naturally to me. So I was using, um, like, object-oriented concepts to put together, I, you know, I need a gripper, and I need a, the hell was it? It was like I would need a gripper, and I would need something else, and I would put them together with some config to end up with the, with the sequence of stuff that I had to then push down to get the robot to do. That is actually cool. It's like a DSL back then, right? Yeah, yeah. It it's it was like wow. When I look back at that, I'm like, that was so. Random. <laughs> so what's what's interesting? The very first EGB specification, they did almost the same. So you were able to configure the EGBs with Java classes with objects, and they they were serialized. So there was a tool where you can yeah. read and serialize the configuration for EGBs. And then the XML revolution started, and they dropped the DSL approach for XML. I don't know what that well, I was. Can't, I can't blame them. That's, oh. So a lot of the stuff that I did early on when I started at IBM in the Stone Ages um, had to do with RMI IAOP, sad to say. Mm -hmm. And I did, I did all that parsing, finagling, God, that was horrible, in C and C++ and also in Java. And I did my share of debugging RMI IOP serialization issues. And that really is enough to make anybody cry for a very long time. Um, so, you know, walking away from object serialization is just probably a good plan. I'm actually a big fan of JSON just for its obviousness. Like, okay. <laughs> Which Java version was it? That's a good question. I was trying to think about that, and I think it was like one two, mm -hmm. so, or something. So it was I think I have the. I think they're at work. Actually, I think I got the, so, the first one, well, like the first or second edition of the Java in a Nutshell book. Yeah, from David Flanagan, right? Yeah, and then I had the two big, like oh, they were two huge books on Java Essentials or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and and that had to be like a one two time frame. Okay. I think it's earlier. So, which year? Year was it? You know it? Uh, 1996. Yeah, then no, it was yeah, five, five, six. One, one or one mm -hmm. zero, actually, because uh, could have been one zero, but I don't. I don't remember being like. Ah, it was a long time ago. Cool. It may have been one zero. Cool. And you started uh, at IBM right away. 
I did. I did. I came right to IBM and I never left. Oh. Um, <laughs> which is, I, I actually, I was at, it was at Java 1. It was at Java 1 last year and everybody's, you know, sharing how long they've worked. And I'm like, yeah, 17 years. And they're like, what? And I'm like, I know. Shh. It's a long time. It's okay. Um, but I, I never left. Um, I like it here. They let me do all kinds of crazy cool things. And I like the people. I love the people I work with. So how you started at IBM? Like so you just applied or? Um, this is also a funny story. Maybe this people will relate to this. Uh, I, I'm really bad at interviews, especially coding interviews. I can code my way any, like I, it, I'm no, I'm no slouch when it comes to coding, but put me on the spot and say, write an algorithm on an index card. And I suck. I'm just like, what is going on? Like I, it, I just don't roll that way. And, uh, they had an on-site event. Like, you know, it was just recruiters coming and, um, well, firstly, also sidebar, uh, it was a woman who came and talked to me and, um, she and I hit it off and she was just very casual about asking me what I was working on and my master's project and all that stuff. And I could explain it to her and it was a lot less pressure than a programming mm -hmm. quiz. Right. And, um, she had me come on site and, you know, it's another woman thing, right? I, I, you know, she would have, she ended up being my hiring manager she introduced me to her manager, who was also a woman, and her manager, who was also a woman. And as a per, like as a young woman in computer science coming out of college, one of my other offers was from another company. The only other woman I met was not in the engineering core. She was a tech. And all of the other men were white men in their 40s. And it's like, I don't want to walk into that. You know, it, it, it's like that, that's in a place where, you know, I'm ferocious and fierce and we'll do all the fighting, but I want backup, you know, I want, I want backup. And here was a whole management chain that we're going to have my back if something happened. And that was a big deal for me at the time. Um, especially, you know, new shiny out of school, you know, it's just stuff you, you want to make sure you have good support. And I did, IBM has always been really, really awesome with that. Um, to, to take the woman thing the other way, it has never mattered. Like it has never, I have never been in a situation really where it was like, oh, she's a girl. We're not going to listen to her. It is just the whole Susan Fowler thing has never happened to me. Yeah, it should not so. matter, right? Bites are bites, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it shouldn't. And and it sadly, it does in a lot of places. And, um, and it has never happened that way at IBM, which has been excellent. Okay. And then uh, you did some IOP and RMI and, and Corva stuff, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, all the things. <laughs> but, um, Do you know? Wait, did you read the WebSocket spec when uh, it came out? WebSockets, uh, I, I, I look at that. Uh, there is one, you know, the diagram with the size of the header. And did you laugh? Did you laugh? Were you like, look, look, it's GIOP for HTTP? Because <laughs> I did. <laughs> no kidding. This is what I actually saying. Not only this, GRPC and Apache Thrift, everything comes back. Yeah. And um, yes. so I, want, I wanted to ask you about this because um, I actually liked RMI. So there were some issues with garbage collector, but mostly it worked. I mean, from the I'm from the other side, right? I'm developer, I'm, I'm user of the technology, and and for me it was actually fun. So especially then with dynamic proxies, you don't even have to generate the proxies and stops. So it was really nice. Well, and, that's gRPC again, but yeah. Yeah, and Corba was a little bit earlier, but uh, RMI over IP, but you know the. The, the native RMI stuff was, was really nice. The JRMP, I think, was the name. Yeah, it was JRMP. The, um, the, my, so, like, the fixed length formatting, the structure of GIOP, IOP was always very slick. It was easy to parse. Um, some of the variants ended up 
you know, if you went back into somebody else's code that was crufty, tended to be challenging. But, but like getting through a payload like that with all of its pieces was really lickety split because it was all length first, very deterministic. You know, you would just go through the whole thing. So that part was great. The reason I I have an issue with RMI IAOP was mostly around specific marshaling of value types. Um, because when something went wrong, oh my God, you would have to trawl through miles of binary code and trying to understand what is, oh my God, it was pain, pain and pain and pain. And, and then, and then then you'd have the extra fun where, you know, uh, like from a debugging of customer applications point of view, it's like, is there sensitive data in here or not? Can I even get into the object that might have a bite? That's right. It was, it was agony. It was agony. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the the writing of the code and the doing of the parsing and I, like that part was all great but oh yeah, well, value type marshalling oh my god but behind the scenes RMI did some cool stuff so as I remember they cached on both sides right the object so they have they, they had like an index with cache so they sent they did mm-hmm. and actually we used that in a couple places to try to get around um, some some other bad proxy behavior like if you were going to update the server side but not the client side And of course, then you'd have stub marshaling problems where you may or may not be able to get the client, the server wouldn't be able to call back to the client um, to get the new metadata information about like what new attributes the client had. Mm -hmm. And you didn't necessarily, right? Remember why we're doing microservices because of long update times, blah, blah, blah. Um, You couldn't necessarily go and update all the server code, but there were some tricks you could play with those caches to try to pre-populate the cache mm-hmm. with the meta information of the versions that were going out for the client. It's kind of sneaky, but um, yeah, because callbacks are dumb. What what's, what's also cool. So just for fun, you remember Marshall object? Yes. This was like, actually you could wrap the serialized object and, uh, and it would download the bytecode on the other side. Right. Yeah, we. I remember that, and I remember that almost always we di- we disabled it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Universally, no. <laughs> I, I never used it in production, but this was like agents, you know, moving code. So this was actually great. Oh yeah, it was a it was a great worm for development, but not a production time. Oh my god, no, off. Yeah, that was why that was why we ended up doing those meta the meta callbacks, right? Because with the meta callback, you weren't you weren't fetching like any executable kind of code you were just fetching like field metadata like what am i parsing like what the hell am i looking for here um which was which we deemed safer um you know it was less risky what's also funny um so i i heard a lot like you know corba is bloated and heavyweight and then i found out that in some you know embedded projects they are they are using iop and corba a lot it's like this is actually funny because uh you know i hear a lot that application servers I think, are um, heavyweight because of corba and then it's used in embedded space so something is wrong with the perception and yeah well i think it's a, it's because the so the corba spec was a oh my god was fat right but it was how many pieces of that spec did you actually use exactly. how far down the rabbit hole did you actually go i mean once you started to get into um some of the different specs you can add on, then you did start getting to some pretty significant payloads. But if you kept some, if you kept it small, eh, Java RMI IOP being actually very, very verbose in how the, the, um, how the data was marshaled and, and how things would go back and forth. Um, and so some of that is the expense when you're in embedded environments, you wouldn't be serializing large objects with, you know, orders of magnitude of big service context. It, mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's once you get all the service 
context and you know, because that's IOR component tags and then the matching service context and then you know all that stuff makes your messages you know exponentially bigger. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what uh, what I think the perception from developers they actually don't care about the protocol rather than you know about the name itself. So there's like you know running joke uh, we have still Corba in JDK we should remove it. And uh, what's also funny is, as I said, is gRPC Thrift. I looked at Thrift, I have to use it, and it was like Corba, but uglier. So I had to use it. You know, <laughs> I used the uh, IDL stuff and generated lots of code oh, with yeah. ugly code, and then was able to talk, I think, Cassandra in the early days. There was no Java clients, so I had to build this by myself. And I said, okay, I, I don't get it. Everyone is, you know, uh, this was like uh, Cassandra without Java. This was very at the beginning, because no. Cassandra was always Java, but the remoting was Thrift. And there was no, I have to compile it by myself. And I said, okay, this is really no fun what's what's going here. And gRPC is the same now, right? So it's it's like uh, every 10 years, everything repeats (laughs) with with different names. And this is 10 years, it's actually exactly right. So about 10 years, we get exactly exactly the same concepts, a little different, uh, with nicer homepage, with website. And yes. um, yeah, and 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 it takes off. So this is this is interesting. Well, some of what some of what Corbin used to do. I mean, that's the thing. It's like uh, we don't do some of the things anymore, like code page negotiation mm-hmm. or big Indian, little Indian stuff. Because when you start going to more straightforward, um, you know, the, this is part of why I love JSON. I know we do binary protocols too, but in the case of gRPC. Um, so, so I think the difference probably between gRPC and Corba is remember Corba was supposed to be doing anything to anything, mm-hmm. right? It was supposed to be all kinds of distributed whatevers, which meant you had to have built into there. Here, I'm going to send you the IOR because that tells you the the code pages that I want and the endianness that I have and all this other stuff. And then, um, actually, you would do the lookup. You get the IOR back. The client would be like, "Let me open up the IOR. Oh, this is the GIOP level I can do." Blah blah blah. So it's client side negotiation, all that stuff, and then the client would connect to the server. But there's this huge information transfer because they were trying to do multi to multi. You know, they were trying to make it much more um, general purpose. Mm-hmm. And with gRPC, you're not. I mean, this is yeah. right? you're building it. You're building it exactly to what you need. More pragmatic. Yeah, so it just dumps. So from that perspective, it's a lot less chatty, right, in terms of doing all that negotiation stuff. So on that note, do you remember actually Genie? Java Intelligent Network Infrastructure? Yes. So this was actually quite interesting concept. It was RMI-based. And uh, how it worked is um, you had to list everything. So this was the interesting part. So you can still reuse you know, the ideas back then for microservices. So if I would like to call to a service, I will have to register my interests and I have to le- to renew my interests every, let's say, 30 seconds. And if I will die, I cannot uh, renew my interests and I will disappear from the, from the framework. And this was actually a brilliant idea. So we implemented clusters with that a few years ago and everyone was delighted. And I used exactly the same name. So you know what I did? I just no, reused the genie concepts once again. <laughs> and, and it's still in production. So this was uh, this was actually in, so you you will have to li- look at this. So it's, uh, it's called Ap- yeah. Apache River. It's still the source code. Um, you can download that. And this was brilliant. The problem it was a uh, Sun Microsystem technology, 
and they they try to sell it as a you no know, printed driver distribution system and no oh. one is probably interested in printed driver distribution but if they were microservices it would just take off or just a different name okay so you stick a lot uh, so you had the host experience as well zos and as400 yes Yeah, well, ZOS specifically. So, so yeah, that was part of the joy. Actually, that's part of why there were so many marshalling issues because ZOS is not ASCII, it's EBCDIC. Mm -hmm. And it's big Endian, not little Endian. So any problem, any potential issue coming from a distributed, what we call distributed, like any Intel box kind of sort of thing, x86, I guess we say now, down to, down to ZOS, like we hit every possible permutation of bug. Oh. Is terrible. Um, but yeah, so I did. That was where I started. Um, I haven't been doing any direct work on Z for a number of years now, um, but that was where I started. And uh, were you also involved in your transaction gateway? So how, how it's called uh, host transaction gateway? So it was like core but transactional representation of the host. So you could call from application server the host. How it's called? CTG or something like this. Yeah, so that's the Kix transaction gateway. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I've been indirectly more involved lately um, because the newer versions of the Kix transaction gateway use Liberty, um, which is exciting. Oh, nice. So they actually, yeah, they pack Liberty um, to do some of their gateway stuff rather than doing it themselves, which is nice. So you did the whole time IOP and RMI and then you switched to Liberty? I did low-level IOP and RMI and then, so I did that for a long time, and then I got pulled off onto the project that grew into Liberty. So I actually um, was on the prototype before the prototype that grew into Liberty. So um, that was a number of years ago now. Um, but that was when we, we first started. We did a lot of experimentation with different technologies to kind of re, just completely revisit how the core of this runtime should work. Um, and so uh, Liberty as it is, is an OSGI-based runtime. So we were playing with um, dependency injection and whether or not we should use Blueprint or declarative services. We opted for declarative services. Um, Spring is more related to Blueprint. Um, What's the difference example. between the declarative services and Blueprint? Um, so declarative services is kind of, it's one of the earliest add-on specs to the core OSGI runtime. Um, it is much more direct. The big difference for us uh, between the, so, Oh gosh. Okay, wait. I just undid myself a second. So, Blue Declarative Services has, uh, you know, like a core that's processing your component definitions. It does dependency injection. It has a notion of relationships between services. Um, so it can do, you know, it does it does the whole, you know, inverted control model kind of thing. Uh -huh. Where if you want a service to be created, you create the service that uses the service, right? An inversion of control stuff for that, which was interesting to try to explain to people who had never heard of that before. That was, that was fun. Um, Blueprint is similar, still a version of, still in version of control, still dependency injection and configuration injection. Um, Blueprint does more with proxying. So um, they do more proxy objects, wrapping the objects, um, which led to some strange damping effects that we didn't really like. Um, and th so that was one thing. And then the biggest difference between the two Blueprint grew out of spring beans. And because those were beans, it did um, configuration injection attribute by attribute at the time. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do, for Liberty, we wanted to do uh, 
you know, be very responsive to dynamic configuration changes. So if you have a Liberty server running and you go and change whatever the heck you want in your server XML, the, the server will respond to all of those changes without you having to restart anything. Um, but we wanted to do that safely. And doing that attribute by attribute is really hard because you don't know where one change ends and the other one begins. And with DS, you get the whole changed map, right? So I just get, oh, map changed. Here's my whole new config. And now I can figure out what this new config means to the state of my object, um, which made, or my service, right? Which made a lot more sense and um, made, you know, our relationships between uh, services and, and service life cycles much more deterministic. So, so within was... uh, Liberty, you have something like a change listener where you receive the map and then you can pull the values and do something with them? So it's a, this is part of why we opted for OSGI. Now we're not using, like we're using just the very, you know, like Equinox core OSGI framework. One of the, um, CERC, one of, it's not, I don't know that it's probably actually is in the OSGI core specification. One of those services is config admin and config admin does, uh, it has mechanisms for, um, it's, it's actually really cool. So it, it, treats itself as a manager of identifiable configuration. So it has, it has, you can think of them still kind of as beans, right? It's just maps. It's holding a bunch of maps and the maps all have names. And um, what's interesting is there's another service. It's called MetaType. With MetaType, I can define what, like I can type all of my attributes. This has to be an int. This has to be a string. This has to have this range. This, you know, you can, so you can do metadata around required configuration. Then you have declarative services, um, which, which can allow, like it can do configuration and it can react, you know, can get configuration injected in a couple different ways. And what ends up happening, it's difficult to describe because if you read either, like if you read any one of the specs in isolation, they, they kind of reference each other, but it's hard to really understand that when you put those three things together, magic happens because no, I'm not kidding because, because when you have config admin, if a config thing shows up, it's typed with meta type. And the cool thing about meta type is you can have variables in the meta type that create other config. So I can, oh, it, it's, Oh my God, the stuff we did was insane. And I, I still think back on it. And I'm like, it was so ridiculously crazy. Some of the stuff we got working. Um, and actually it's now all open source. So you could go find this crazy stuff that we did because it's in open Liberty. So how we configure like one of the biggest puzzles was getting JPA configuration, like how you get uh, JDBC driver, like JDBC configuration linked up with, um, with a service that's going to create the connection to the, it's like, what did we just do? We created monsters. It is awesome. Um, so it's really like this crazy Bermuda Triangle of of goodness between uh, between those three things. And they let the server do just just crazy gymnastics. Um, it's actually kind of sad, if I'm honest, because our little server can do gymnastics and can respond to any kind of config change you throw at it. And what's the trend now? Immutable artifacts. Yes. I'm going to cry. <laughs> so we have to wait 10 years right you know right <laughs> um <laughs> that is so true but but what it does still do is you have a really nice development experience so if i'm if i'm working with my server locally and i need to make any changes it'll all respond and i can add i can add new features and it'll just add them and i can never i don't ever have to 
restart a server. And that, that applies even if I have the server running in a Docker container. So if I have some um, orchestrated local setup because I'm just trying to make sure something works and I want to edit one piece, I can have that server running and I can make changes in the mounted volume and it'll keep going and I'm not disturbing anything that's running. And uh, what happens if something goes wrong? You have the rollback principle or it always works? Um, or is it, it transactional? This is the question. It's not, it's not transactional. It's a good question. Um, we try to be as forgiving as possible. And in most cases, uh, you know, our rules were um, thou shalt not like, you know, fail, basically. So we do a lot of configuration vetting before we apply it. So MetaType helps with this, by the way. So with all the MetaType stuff, you declare what all of those good values are. And so if I try to change my server XML to a bad value, the config just never reaches the service. It gets kicked out. Right, right? Cool. The server doesn't come down, but what that config change doesn't get applied because, you know, you messed it up. So how it works, do you have a kind of watchdog which parses the uh, server XML and finds changes? We have a couple different ways to do that. So, so we, you can set, um, we have a couple different places where we say, yeah, okay, poll, you know, go, go read the file periodically and tell me what's happening. And out of the box, that's the default. Um, that'll go do polling because for development, that's kind of what you want. Mm -hmm. um, but you can change it, for example, to MB, which is a, a trigger. So it won't, it won't actually actively poll, but you can still kick it to say, all right, go look. And when you're using Liberty with... Uh, the WebSphere development tools in Eclipse, for example, Eclipse, uh, the, the WebSphere development tools, they will turn polling off and will switch to MBean on your behalf because um, they will kick the server more intelligently, right? So that you don't get file detections when you're half, you know, when you're not really quite done with an edit, mm -hmm. for it. example. So it tries to be a little smarter about when it tells the server to go reread your your source, right? Because that way you can avoid compilation problems. Because you can't, the, the Liberty will also scan for changes to your app, right? So changes to your config, it'll kick out. But changes to your app, if you if you throw in a compile failure, well, and it was something that would cause the app to restart, well, there you go, right? Okay. <laughs> you got to fix it. And then the, the app will still restart, right, within your server. But um when you fix the compilation error, your server is still happy. Um, but, you know, WDT tries to make that happen a little less frequently by um, being smarter about when to tell the server to reread. So you have the Polar, you have the MBean, and the MBean mm -hmm. just uh, notifies the Polar, but right? Basically. So instead of, so, so the Polar is emitting a signal, go do the thing, go do the thing, go do the thing. It's a trigger. The, the, the one that actually goes and scans is independent of the trigger. So what we're basically doing is we're trading out triggers. Okay. Right. So one is a trigger that like it knows how to pull, but we're saying we don't want to use the pull. We want to use this thing. And so then if you tell the MBean, it'll kick the same process off to do the same reading it would have otherwise. What is the name of the MBean? You know that? That's a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. We have them all written down. Okay, no problem. I just It's been a long time. There is one. I think it might just be the server MBean. Okay, I would just look it up. I was just curious. Not, we don't have really puzzling, well. So I can just MB. connect with JConsole and I will see the MBIN, right? Yeah. yeah okay, yeah. this is what yeah. I will do. Okay, thank you. Yeah. What's interesting me, what was actually the use case or what were, you know, the vision or the mission? Why you started with the Liberty stuff at IBM? So there should be a trigger or something. Oh, there was. Um, we're not completely tone deaf. Uh, people, what's well, actually, it's interesting because it was like the precursor to everybody uh, having to go cloud native and microservices, right? 
um, the the full app server is it takes a long time to restart um, and it took a long time to start on on Windows and so you ended up with really long restart times right which is painful for developers mm-hmm. and um, you know we heard developers telling us this is too hard uh, you need to give us something that that is faster and so the very first version of Liberty that went out the aim was to have the same web container, the same EJB container, the same, you know, JPA, JDBC, right? The same function that you would get from the big app server, but in a, a smaller server that was much better suited um, to uh, running on the, um, running on a laptop or, you know, restarting whatever, however many times you needed to do that. Um, but that was, that was the impetus, right? Is to try to make it easier for people to develop applications. Um, Java E applications for WebSphere. Um, as it happens, it was a production grade runtime too, but we knew that that wasn't always how people were going to use it. I think it came out with WebSphere 8.0 in that time frame, And so one of the scenarios was, right, you build and deploy your app uh, on your laptop, and then it will deploy seamlessly to the big mothership in the sky, as we now say those are. Okay. So, because I, uh, I think it was four or five years ago, I worked for a bank, and they told me about the Liberty. I said, "Okay, this is strange." And just look at this, and it was uh, really small. And then I went to your blog, and it's uh, at um, nicht to your blog. I think it was W A S Dev. Yep, was um, Dev. Was Dev, and I found this like uh, I remember this like a party with rockets. So you had some parties with uh, rocket launching or whatever. And I said, this is actually great because it, it felt to me like, you know, at Sundays, uh, uh, there were some microsystems that they started with Glassfish. They had also lots of fun, you know, small team try to achieve something yes. impossible. And I found the same spirit. It's like, this this could be actually interesting because, uh, yeah, uh, this seems like, you know, there's like a small special forces team build something interesting. <laughs> and yeah, uh, the, the, it was a small special forces team. The first group of people that worked with me uh on the, the beginning of that we were seven it was just seven of us that kicked that off um and it kind of grew from there so the core kernel stuff there were only seven of us that were working on that but you never meet more i mean why you oh, no it, it grew into many more right but like at the time we were looking at at the core you know just the core kernel piece mm-hmm. um how do we you know how are we going to structure the runtime um some aspects of of liberty as it's open source now actually date back that far um, a lot of things are significantly different than than when when those originally, you know, when we originally wrote it. Um, but that was when we started playing with declarative services. That was when we started playing with how how this Bermuda Triangle would work um, of DS and config admin and and Metatype, and then uh, how the how feature management would work. How we were going to do um, provisioning of features, resolving of any issues. Uh, you know, the whole, actually, um, when we were figuring out how to, how to work with features, um, that ended up shaping to some extent the way OSGI subsystems work, um, because, um, we were looking at the way features work. It's a, it is actually a way of building a flat class path out of pieces. Um, so, so we are kind of aggregating of, of, um, we're, we're putting together a flat class path based on a lot of metadata where we're trying to make sure that versions match and we've got, you know, um, a consistent set of classes. And that was all coming out of pain points for deployment of, of applications where you started having, you know, mixed dependencies and stuff. 
Are you already thinking about Java 9 module integration? Yes and no. Um, it's not dynamic. It's not dynamic. It, it, I, I'm really torn. Uh, like on one hand, on one hand, what interests me is being able to lop out way more stuff that nobody cares about anymore. <laughs> Corba, for mm -hmm. example. We don't use the Corba stuff that's down in the, in the JDK. I would be happy to drop it on the floor, right? But it, at some point, um, I, I don't understand why I would use that at the app level. Like for me, shaping the JVM and what parts I can leave out, that's great. I get that. But to use that in my app, I, don't, I haven't come to terms with why I would do that. The architecture slides look better. <laughs> this is what usually yeah. happens. But um, <laughs> but um, I'm completely with you. Also, and and also, um, this is interesting because uh, your you and your team uh, you are building lots of modules and you know the uh, mm -hmm. try to optimize the runtime. And I'm coming from the other direction. I'm using your stuff, and uh, this is why uh, I had already uh, some some discussions with. Uh, Mr. Nottingham, not? Yeah, Alistair, yeah. Alistair, for instance, and with you. And, and you try to be extremely, extremely efficient and say, okay, look, we can just, you know, uh, have um, minimal runtime with two features, let's say CDI, Just, and JaxRS. And this liberty is tiny. So what I usually do, I just use everything, like Java 7 full or web profile, and it's still tiny. It's like 40 megs. It's like, why I need, you know, the the savings of two megs of RAM. No one cares about that. What happens is the it's the aggregate size of the whole image when you're looking at a Docker container, for example. And and if you look at a Docker, this is this is this is oh god, it's maddening. Um, you know, people who are like, well, you can't possibly write microservices in Java because the containers are like three hundred blah blah blah. They're, they're huge. And it's like, well, you have the JVM, which is X big, and you know. So when you can start cutting things out to make it tinier, you start being more competitive with something like with like Go. I mean, you'll never be really competitive with Go because Go is really tiny. Um, but but you can you can strip it down quite a bit. Um, and so that's usually where that impetus to bring it down to the smallest possible size. So so that's the Docker case. The other case that we have, um, and it has to do with how our customers run. Um, Liberty has something uh, called collectives, um, which are actually still pretty awesome, even though a lot of people are doing things with, with you know, they're more container-driven now. Um, but one of the things you could do with collectives is essentially manage um, a distributed topology of servers, uh, lots of little Liberty service, you know, lots of little Liberty servers, and the collective controller would help you push packages around. And when you're thinking about a, either a Docker container or a packed-up Liberty server, for example, that's going to go over the wire, You want to transmit the least amount possible. Okay. And that's when you start shrinking your image size, right? Because you 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 don't want to pack the extra bytes if you're going to be pushing it around everywhere. Okay. So this is the uh, package command, right? Mm-hmm. Minify. Okay. Yeah. This is compressed, uh, like server package. So I always wondered what I'm doing with that. So I can package the full, you know, Liberty on my, my hard disk. So but. So there was a couple different things that the collective that, that collectives, for example, would use. And collectives was one way. We've had people use uh, the server package kind of stuff with Chef or Puppet too to do automatic provisioning um, across the board. So if I have uh, Liberty in my CI/CD pipeline or on my laptop, I could do server package. I could do a couple things. One is I could just take the um, 
there's a couple different, I could pack the whole thing, which is the binaries and everything. I could ship that around. That's when you usually want to be pretty small. Um, you know, drop extra things out of the image you don't need because you're including the whole thing. The other thing you can do is take just the user directory. So when we created Liberty, we had the idea that there's part of the install image that's ours and there's part of it that's yours. Um, and this again comes from pain with, with um, the, the full web sphere where when you went to do upgrades or, or apply service, we would try to go and patch your configuration and it was always like both good, you know, it was like blessing and curse because it was always painful. Um, and so we just said, you know, hands off. We're not, A, we're not going to break you. And like, that was a promise. We're not going to break you. And B, we're not going to touch your stuff. So, so anything under the user, what we call the user directory, that's yours, right? So we'll maintain the image and, and you'll do like whatever user directory is. And that's another thing where one of the packages you can do is just, the user directory, and that would have any shared libraries you might have or that kind of thing. And then the other thing um, that you could do that, that you could just pack a server. So with like, we had a couple different ways you could package the server to just get the pieces that you need. And that was all to assist this. Let me farm things out. We've had situations where people use shared NFS mounts and they put their binary on a shared NFS drive. Um, so they might put the binary and then they'd have the user directories in separate directories because you can use environment variables to say where the binaries are versus where the, the user stuff is, which is nice for upgrades because you just make the new binary one and, and launch the server with the, with the same user directory. And if it doesn't work, your rollback is really straightforward. And then they would set the output directory to something local, which meant they only had to manage one place for their app mm -hmm. across however many servers they actually needed. So what you um, did, they would share all the binary place. Another Docker use case, right? So you had actually two layers, like the stable layer, which belongs to you, and the yes. user layer, which was based on your layer, which was replaceable. It was exactly. Absolutely. And, and we did that. Yeah. And we did that a long time ago. That's one of the reasons Liberty is so well suited for Docker is we built it that way. <laughs> we did it for other reasons, yeah. but, but we built it that way. Yeah. But um, you mentioned Docker and Go. I think... So in my projects, it really does not matter, except at the very beginning for marketing purposes. But if I show how it actually works, no one cares about the Docker size. What actually happens is uh, you will lose some hard disk space per machine. Right. So and uh, so it really, if let's say the Liberty, if it takes not, I don't know, on disk uh, 70 max download size, but it would be, let's say, 200. So I will lose 200 max per machine. Right. And, and this... you. Not, does not matter at all for my clients, you know. If there's an enterprise projects, yeah. we have, I don't know, at most 10 nodes, 10 servers for huge projects. So no one cares whether we will lose, you know, uh, two gigs of, of hard disk space. And also does not matter for RAM. So um, I did it again, WJX conference two weeks ago. So I measured different uh, application servers just for fun, you know, on stage with JVisual VM and the Liberty with, uh, I think it was Web Profile 7. Um, was like 40 max without any optimizations, just out of the box, uh, was RAM consumption, was, or, or uh, below that, actually. It was one of the smallest. But even the biggest one, like the Glassfish was the biggest, it was like around 50, 60 max. So this difference is tiny. So, I mean, who cares about 20 max of RAM? So, uh, except you are running in the clouds, right? If I have thousands of these, this is complete different use case and discussion. But uh, this is the over-optimization of things. It, it costs a lot of money in projects. 
and and you have no real benefit. This is this is my right. problem so, with that. So the way we the way we structure liberty now, I think we're somewhat crossing streams here. So so the the minimum like creating the minimal image was about actual bytes, and most of that is around um, management of bytes when you're pushing them around a network. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a it's a deployment time problem, right? Where we have people who are having to go over networks or through isolated firewall gateway air gap or, you know, however the hell they're going to do that, not air gap so much, but um, you know, they have to go through tiny pinhole little networks sometimes. And, and that takes a long time. So you want to minimize the amount you're actually transmitting mm-hmm. in order to roll out changes in those kinds of environments. Um, and so that's where the image size comes in. So there's, there's Ram when it's running, which is a different concern than, than the actual image you're pushing around. This is actually interesting. So what I do in my project, I, I, I do it differently. So uh, for me, Liberty is stable. It never changes. And my app is actually a deployment unit. It's a war. And therefore, mm-hmm. what cares a lot to me is, I call it thin wars. So the the war yes. has to be as thin as possible because only the war moves over the network. So, uh, That's right. So in all my cloud projects, uh, I, I, we didn't care about the size of the application server on disk at all. So for me, it was very important that the war is uh, far smaller than one Mac because uh, we had to deploy several times a day. And if the war is small, right. it is very quick. So um, and it seems like with the packaging, there's complete different use cases like... Um, um, how to call it? Not serverless. There was something else. Not Docker. It is called um, where you had just the binary without the container. There's another buzzword for that. So that, the fat jar? Uh, not fat jar. It is uh, uh, Java independent uh, terminology. It's like um, oh, um, um, where I think it, this concept already died. The idea was that uh, you would just run a binary on minimal system without any without any virtualization nothing there was a specific word for that oh uh, yeah something like uh yeah in java it would be fed jar but there is something else in uh in the binary world so um and and this is the distinction so i think the fed jar is is what they try to do before docker and right. now it doesn't make any sense anymore i just think i i think the to me yeah the fed jar thing is kind of strange so it's like if i look at Build packs, which you deploy war to, wars to, and then fat jars. Now, fat jars and Docker containers are similar in that you're master of your whole desk, you know, your own destiny, top to bottom, mm-hmm. right? Fat jar has everything you need. Docker container has everything you need. Um, and we've talked already about how the Docker container organizes your layering, so you get better cache use. But like a build pack, to me, where you just push the war to the build pack, it, to me, that's no different than pushing your war to an app server running in the sky in terms of how much control you have about the, the environment your app is running in. So that, that particular path never made any, any sense to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, now, but, but this is per accident. This is why application servers are actually the best technology for the cloud. Because if I consider an application server as an operating system for my stuff, I just don't care actually about I just rely on the existence of the APIs. And then I'm coding against that, that what I only have in my war is the API. Not even this, this is provided. So actually I compiled against the API and then I push it to the cloud. And this is actually genius. Then the whole discussion, you know, about heavyweight or whatever, it just does not make any sense. I think that, right, I think that the the 
slander or the, the, the thing that's being used there is, is how the app server is running, right? And it has to do with, you know, do you have the single app server instance that's has a special name and, you know, it's got multiple apps in it and, you know, we have to go through all the deployment roles to get this. Oh, okay, <laughs> but this is dead for years. Exactly, dead for years. And in uh, all the new app servers, I agree with you, right? And they're all tiny. All of them are tiny. So um, I, I think there's a lot of benefit in, all the way around. Um, for using smaller app servers. So you're, you, especially with Docker, for example, where you can still say, yeah, I'm master of my own destiny and I'm totally controlling my environment, but I'm only pushing around this tiny piece. Um, we did the same thing with Chef or Puppet where you would have a shared drive that had the binaries on it. Yeah, exactly. Now you are also, I think your title is something with Cloud Native, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm looking a lot at Cloud Native, Java, and um And all the application, well, Java application frameworks, you know, that are all in cloud land. Um, that includes Java EE, that includes MicroProfile. It also includes Spring um, because they're very much in the cloud native mix. Yeah, so they have uh, kind of Spring Cloud and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, what's, if someone says cloud native, and I hear some th sometimes, no, Java EE is not cloud native. What is actually meant by that? Or, 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 or what is lacking? Because... Um, I never never had any problems with the clouds. For me, it's just like uh, a, a remote server, a little bit more organized with a nice API or a nicer API, I would say, and um, and all the resource management and so, so forth is uh, a little bit more convenient. But um, at the end of the day, this is actually a machine, and you see it extremely if you try, you know, to work with ECS on Amazon. So you, the first thing you have to do, you have to to to, to get a machine and then run your Docker mm -hmm. on the machine and then this is actually no difference to my machine. So if, if, if someone says to you cloud native, what does it mean cloud native? So, so to me, the big, big differences between a cloud native um, application and any other kind of application are one of the biggest differences, it's transience and all of the stuff that you have to do to deal with the fact that this thing could go away at any time. Mm -hmm. um, and when you, when you think about it that way, you start to understand why people would suggest and like let's take the bigger concept concept here or the or the history behind java ee going back even to our conversation with corba right um there's a lot of um statefulness in some of the java ee apis um and how you deal with transactions and rollbacks and um it, you know state it, it, it's like it's kind of pervasive in some of the in some of the apis that you have for java ee and, and they don't necessarily go with the notion that this instance could die at any time, mm -hmm. could just vanish. Um, and, and so to me, that's where, that's where the, you know, Java is no good for cloud native. I think it comes from that, but that's my view. Um, and I really do feel that people that are saying that haven't looked at the new JaxRS. They haven't like, they haven't played with the new stuff because the new stuff is absolutely not that. Um, and when you look at some of what EJBs do in terms of local EJBs, right, where those are just helping you manage your persistence locally within the service, right? That's, that's legit microservices. I'm going to manage my persistence within my box. It's totally legit. And, um, you know, J Java EE does that very, very handily. So I, I think the, the problem is the historical robustness of Java EE for the older model of distributed computing. I agree. Where things were much longer lived. Yeah. 
I agree fully with you. So if yes, if I would use you now all the Java E APIs for no reason, like uh, starting with two phase commit, just as the first one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this is the first yeah, one, right? Then uh, stateful EJBs with extended uh, entity manager, what I could do mixed with JSF with a little bit state, then I probably have a problem. But uh, I mean, it, it, it worked as designed. So I mean, this is what I do. It will work hardly in the cloud because I will need a sticky sessions or something like this. And, and yeah. there's uh, a lot of work to do. But I don't have to do this. So it's exactly the same like, you know, telling the Java is not cloud native at all. Java SE because we have preferences uh, configuration API, which talks to Windows registry. It's okay, but you don't have to use it. And you don't have to start a Swing application in your application server, you know. This is like, uh, this is um, this is complete different discussion. So for me, I'm not using, I probably use 30% of the whole Java E API. And uh, because the application servers are so small, I don't care about, you know, the remaining two-phase commits or whatever. So I just accept it's okay, small enough is actually tiny. I don't care whether there is something which I don't use. And I get the question conference you no know, every time. You are using application servers. How much of this stuff you are using? I was like, I don't care. Is is small enough? I mean, it's just even <laughs> for me it makes it is true. it's not it no is difference true. between point, web yeah. profile and full profile. I always take the full profile because there is no real difference to me. Yeah. Right. So it's the same as I will come to you and ask you know how 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 heavy your car is and you tell us so what it's one thousand kilos. <laughs> okay, but why are you driving this? It's way too heavy. I mean, there are lighter cars like this again, but it works for me. You know, this is like um, yeah. usability counts a lot. Yeah, and and the thing is, is a lot of the once you get into Java seven, like that, we're just smarter about how much we load. Um, the the and that was something that we did on purpose. Um, it's just to take liberty. So even if you have uh, things in the footprint, for example, for your usability case where you don't feel like messing around with your image size all the time, which I get, um, we're much better with liberty, deliberately so, on not loading stuff that you don't have any, you know, you don't have any configuration for. You don't have anything that uses it. So it never it never starts. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's just, it's just a much smarter way to, to be. Um <laughs> for a whole host of reasons, right? Some of the bigger application servers, they evolved. Um, a lot of them evolved out of Corba. And because of how Corba worked and because of what you needed to bootstrap which components that had to go into which IORs, which got went into which object keys, which had, you know, kind of primordial information in them, um, it kind of made a mess at start time. Uh, and actually, when we brought EJBs into, or when we brought... Um, remote EJBs into Liberty, um, object keys are a problem. IORs and object keys are a problem because... But remote um, EJBs are dead, actually. Oh, they are. But to be spec compliant, we had to bring it in, right? So so to be spec spec compliant, we had to bring it in. and, And it's dicey because of how much information it has to have right at startup. Mm in order to, to pack the, the uh, IORs and the object key information properly. What I also think is another reason. Uh, there were patterns like eager loading back then. So the idea was to, yeah. to load as much as possible in startup time in order for the compiler to optimize all the stuff. So, uh, so this was, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. There are lots of articles about that, you know, always eager load everything and fail fast if something does not work. And now we have the opposite. Uh, everything has to be lazy loaded. It's exactly the opposite. That's why that's why um, de- declarative services, the dependency injection and version of control is so awesome. Because if you don't reference something, it doesn't come to be. 
because you don't need it. Okay. So it's just it's completely dormant. Cool. And another question, is it an easy way to inject environment entries to configuration? Let's say I would yes. I would have out of the box. Very cool. That this is really important in cloud native environments, right? It absolutely is. It absolutely is, and we use it all the time. So so Liberty will read environment variables natively with your usual bash kind of environment variable syntax. Um right in right in, in line with the server XML with no extra no extra effort. The cool thing, um I think there might be one bug I have to see if we fixed. I don't remember. I don't remember if we fixed it. There, there's a couple cases where um, I have used. This is actually Trixie. So I've had cases where I've had a config where I wanted to have optional behavior based on what environment I was in. Like for example, something mm-hmm. that it in the case of Bluemix, uh, for example, I would have a special collector that would know how to send data to the Bluemix log collector, cool. for example, right? And and I didn't want that. It's like, it's just config. It's something outside of my app, but I only want that config enabled when I'm in the environment that needs it. Um, and you can do, and like, and, and I was using, um, so Liberty Server XML has includes, and I was using a, ser- a, you know, an include line that had a variable in it that was based on, you know, that I would fill in with the environment and, and I made it an optional include. So that optional include would only be, it would only work, right? If I was in the environment the, with the right environment variable to match the file name. Cool. So it's, so it, it, you know, so I can just trigger whole little subsets of, and it, it's not application changes, right? It's just config changes where I still want to be able to check in mm-hmm. my, this is what I need with environment variable substitutions even there. This is what I need when I'm in this environment. This is what I need when I'm in this environment. And I can do those in snippets. And then and then I can just use um, includes with a common kind of variable, right? Which target am I in? And it would pick up the right snippet. And it still is using environment variables for all the specific stuff. And this is a template-like syntax, right? In my XML with data source, let's say, so I have a placeholder that the name is like, I don't know, my connection. And is going to be replaced with the environment entry on startup. Yeah. Okay. This is yeah. nice. It looks like bash. It looks like the bash. So it's got the dollar sign oh, and a curly good. break. Is... It has an env prefix in front of oh, cool. it. Cool. But then this it's is a, exactly the same yeah, as Payara. Pretty simple. It's nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. But you are you are still working on Liberty? Actually, right now I am not as involved with Liberty. Um. Because I'm actually involved a little more with Spring. Um. And how we bring those two together. So Spring does have a very nice programming model and um, it does different things, right? It has its different way of doing things. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it, right? There's lots of people who love it. Um, And so, you know, I'm trying to work on how to bring spring um, into different cloud environments and whether or not there's things we can do um, to make, I don't know, to make spring play better with, with other systems that we have. Ah, Okay. But there's a Liberty not unrelated, right? Not unrelated to Liberty. Liberty will run Spring applications as yeah. wars, for example. Yeah, um, and so, you know, is there stuff we can improve there? Can we make can we make that experience better? We also have with uh, with the IBM Cloud now. We have a bunch of new um, experiences rolling out in the in the like. If you were to log into Bluemix, you can go and and use a UI to create stub applications. 
And so we have support both for creating um, Liberty applications and for creating spring applications and for managing the reason you would do that is because you can say, I want to allocate a Cloudant or a Redis or a Mongo and you will get your service bindings automatically created. It'll do a whole bunch of just um, allocation and, uh, and, you know, binding stitching together to make it easier to, you know, to be ready to write your app. And it's the same. We have a CLI that will do similarly. So having both a Liberty path and a spring path on both of those optimized flows is one of the things we've been working on. Nice. Interesting projects. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, it's been, yeah, it has been a good time. So now, um, where people can find you? Where they, the can they find me? They can... Twitters yeah. and blogs and websites. Yeah, they can find me. They can find me on Twitter. Um, it's Ebullient Works and Ebullient is a noun, um, adjective an adjective and all of the definitions apply to me so that's why i use it all the time i do have a personal blog that i'm trying to to use more often that's abulientworks.com um and then i have uh there's a project an open source project that we have running that helps people mess around with um microservices cloud native concepts and just other apis and you know it gives you more of a playground for trying that thing that you it's mostly back end let me try this thing in the back end that i have no idea you know we've, we tried to give you here you try to build something here's what you can build and so we've got the front end and you just focus on whatever thing you want to experiment with in the back end um and that's gameontext.org um and we have a blog for that and you can find me there and there's a slack for that and you can find me there cool Anything else to add? Interesting no, about your work and you know Java. Yeah, Java and I go way back, so uh, it's 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 fun. I I'm personally waiting to see how long until we're full circle again, because um, you know nothing in software is ever new, and just like we said earlier. So I'm just I'm just waiting, like I'm waiting for the last couple things to fall before we've recreated Corba again. <laughs> for the coffee baby, really, you know, for the coffee really, baby. Exactly. Yeah, we're only we're only a few, just a few steps off, I think, from from being exactly where we were. Okay. So, so then, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. This is fun. Yeah, it was really fun. So better than you know, writing an interview on blog.